Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word. Please give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts that are ready to be changed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'd like to begin today with a question. Who do you think are the people in the world that are worth knowing? Who are the people that the media thinks are worth knowing? Well, at the moment, obviously, Julia Gillard. She's the first female Prime Minister of Australia. She's practically on the news every day. She's worth knowing, isn't she? She's important. The media seems to think that it's important for us to know that she has red hair. <laughs> or take Danny Minogue. She just gave birth to a son. That's worth knowing about, isn't it? She's important. Warren and Beth recently gave birth to a beautiful girl. Didn't see that on the news. <laughs> or an octopus called Paul. He's just minding his own business. He's feasting on these mussels in these see-through boxes. The media seems to think that that's important for us to know. So who do you think are the people worth knowing? Well, I'll tell you my one. For myself, my childhood dream was to become either an astronaut or a pilot. None of those dreams came true. It's okay, I'm not sad, I'm not bitter. But for me, anyway, I would love to know an astronaut, to hear about the wonders of space travel, to hear about their experience of what it's like in space. And I'd love to know a pilot, perhaps to learn how to fly, perhaps get cheap airfares, <laughs> and, and, and perhaps get a set of their uniforms. I reckon they just look awesome. So what about you? Maybe it's to know someone of royalty, perhaps knowing Mary Donaldson before she before she became the crown princess of Denmark. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? To have her as your friend, to have someone who's of royalty. There are so many important people in the world, many powerful people, celebrities, the rich and famous. They're all worth knowing, aren't they? Well, at least the media would have us believe so. But now let's turn, to, turn this question on to us. Are we the people of Chatswood Presbyterian? Are we worth knowing? Are you worth knowing? Are you important enough to be on the news? Well, most of us don't feel very important, do we? We just live our quiet, normal lives. We don't live a life of glamour. We're not superstars. Except perhaps Carmelina. She comes very close to being a superstar. <laughs> but I mean, did any of you have paparazzis chasing after you on the way to church this morning? We live quite ordinary lives, don't we? And this was perhaps how the Jews were feeling during the time of Zechariah. They were just a smallish group of people now. They're sort of past their news by date. They're not really worth knowing anymore on the world stage. But that was never always the case. There was a time when the Jews, when the whole nation of Israel, they were the centre of the world. They were the world power. This was about 500 years before the time of Zechariah during the time of the great King David, during the time of the great King Solomon. That was their golden age. They were very important on the world stage. Even the queen from a different nation, the Queen of Sheba, she came up to see the splendor of their city, to see the splendor of the temple, to hear the wisdom of Solomon and to hear about his God. You see, the Jews at one time were very important. They were worth knowing. And if the media was around back then, they would have been the talking point. 
But now in Zechariah, it wasn't the case any longer. Things were far from that golden age. They've been back to the land now for about 18 years. They, they came back and their city was ruined. There was no temple, though they started to rebuild that now. They have no king. Things seem rather ordinary, even bleak for them. But today in Zechariah 8, God promises to change things all around, to bless them in greater ways than before, and to make them once again a people worth knowing. Now this chapter follows on very closely from the chapter last week, from the sermon last week. It's divided into two major sections, and we see this division in verses 1 and 18. We see this repeated phrase, again, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. So that divides up the, two, the chapter into two sections. Now in the first section, God promises here that he will bless the Jews. He will bless them by dwelling with them. And in the second section, God promises that the Jews will become a blessing, a blessing to the world. They will be people worth knowing because they know God. So firstly, God will bless the Jews. And secondly, the Jews will become a blessing. So now let's look at the first section. In this chapter, you'll notice that there are a series of ten statements, ten prophetic words, and each of them begin with this phrase, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Now seven of these statements occur in the first section. Now in the first of these statements, the Jews were reminded once again about why God would bless them in the first place. God describes himself as a jealous God a God who's jealous for them. Now, this does not suggest that God's selfish or envious, but that God is intensely concerned for what belongs to him. The, the people of the, the Jewish people, they belong to him. The uh, mountain of Zion, that belonged to God. And so God will protect and defend what belongs to him. And we see this in the opening two verses. Have a look at your Bible. Again, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I'm very jealous for Zion. I'm burning with jealousy for her. So if God is jealous for this people, what will he do about it? Well, we see this in the second statement. God promises that he will return to them and he will dwell with them. God will be with them. Now, you must imagine how amazing that promise alone is. This nation has been declining for 500 years, declining since the later years of Solomon. And they were just in exile to Babylon for 70 years. Now that they've returned, they, they found that their city was ruined. They would have felt that God was far, that God was distant, that God was only over them in judgment. But here, God promises that he will return to them. That's a huge promise. And not only that, because God will be with them, their city will be transformed. It will be called the city of truth. And the mountain of God will be called the holy mountain. God's presence with them will transform the whole city. And we see this in verse 3. This is what the Lord says. I'll return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. And the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. So how would this city be transformed? Well, we see this in the next statement. It will become a city of peace, of security, of prosperity. Now, people old, like Patrick, <laughs> and young, they will live peacefully in this city. 
kids could play around on the streets safely. They could run around, exercise, get fit, rather than be bound at home to that PlayStation or that Matt's book if they're Asian. It's a beautiful picture of city life that's painted here. Have a look at verse 4 and 5. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with cane in hand because of his age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. Now the fourth statement. Now we see that to the Jews who have just returned from the exile, these promises seem just sort of too good to be true. Unimaginable after what they've been through. But then God declares that these things are not too marvellous to him. That is, they're not too difficult for God to achieve. God can do it. Have a look at verse 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvellous to the remnant of these people at that time, but will it seem marvellous to me, declares the Lord Almighty. God's promise of blessing and restoration, there's more to it. It continues in the fifth statement now. When the Babylonians, when they attacked Jerusalem, many Jews fled down south to Egypt and to the surrounding nations. But God now promises to bring them back. God promises to fill the city of God with the people of God. Verse 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west. I'll bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. So, so far, what has God promised? Well, God has promised to dwell with them. God has promised to restore their city. And God has promised to fill their city once again with his people. Now, now these promises alone would have been beyond what they've dreamed of. But the picture of God's blessing of this new age, this new city, is not yet complete. There's more to it. Now, in the sixth statement, God now promises that he will deal with his people in a new way. There will no longer be violence and animosity between them. There will no longer be objects of cursing. Their land will no longer be unfruitful. What God was promising here was the reversal of some of the curses of the fall. Work will be easier for the man. The ground will bear its fruit. And people will get along with each other. But not only that, the Jews will become a blessing. That bit of this statement will be later unpacked in the second section. So God is here promising to bless them in a new and greater way. But in the meanwhile, they're commanded to just get on with building the temple. We've heard that message over and over again. They're to get on with building the temple. Half of it's built by this time. Go on and finish it off. And we see this statement from verses 9 to 13. This is what the Lord Almighty says. You who now hear these words spoken by the prophets, who were there when the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord Almighty, let your hands be strong so that the temple may be built. Before that time, there were no wages for man or beast. No one could go about his business safely because of his enemy, for I had turned every man against his neighbour. But now I will not deal with the remnant of these people as I did in the past, declares the Lord Almighty. The seed will grow well. The vine will yield its fruit. The ground will produce its crops. And the heavens will drop their dew. I'll give all these things as inheritance to the remnant of these people. As you have been an object of cursing among the nations, 
O Judah and Israel, so I will save you, and you will be a blessing. Do not be afraid, but let your hands be strong. So that was the sixth statement. Now the seventh statement. God reinforces here that he will deal with them in a new and greater way. God will no longer bring disaster upon them. God will no longer have no pity on them, but God will do good to them. He will pour out his blessings and his mercy upon them. But just as God will deal deal with them in a new way, they too are to change their ways. They are to live lives that is fitting of this new city of God. God will dwell with them. God will be with them. So their lives are to reflect the character of their God. And so they are to speak the truth to each other. After all, this city is called the city of truth. They are to be people of honesty, of integrity. They are to hate evil just as God hates evil. And we see this from verse 14 to 17. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Just as I had determined to bring disaster upon you and showed no pity when your fathers angered me, says the Lord Almighty. So now I have determined to do good again to Jerusalem and Judah. Do not be afraid. These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against your neighbour and do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. So that's the first section of this chapter. In these first seven statements, God makes huge promises to the Jews. God promises that he will bless them in ways unimaginable, that God will once again dwell with them. Now we move on to the second, statement, uh, second section. Here we find the remaining three statements. In these statements, God declares, that, de- declares what will result from all his generous blessings, that mourning will turn to cel- uh, celebration, and the Jews will become a blessing, a blessing to the world, because they know the true God. So now the eighth statement. Now if you remember from last week's talk, a big question was posed by those people who came from Bethel. They wanted to find out whether they should continue fasting, that is, to continue to mourn the destruction of the temple. At this stage, half the temple was built, so should they continue to fast? Well, the answer to their question only comes now in this eighth statement. God declares that there will be a time that they will no longer fast, that they will no longer need to mourn because God will bless them. And so they are to celebrate. They are to rejoice and be glad. And we read this in verses 18 and 19. Again, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The fast of the fourth, fifth, seventh, and tenth months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love truth and peace. But all these blessings are not just for the Jews. The blessings of God has an outward focus, and we see that in the final two statements. So the ninth statement now. God promises that the people of other cities will come to them to find out who their God is. You see, the Jews will become a blessing to the world because they have the knowledge of God. And if you think about it, that should make sense. If the Jews will have it so good, then that will draw people in to want to find out why they have it so good, to find out who their God is. And we read this from verses 20 to 22. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come, and inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, 
Let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek out the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. Now finally, the tenth statement, the last one. This statement reinforces the role of the Jews as being a blessing to the world. Different people and, uh, from different languages and nations will grab onto this one Jew by the hem of his robe and they'll ask him, tell me about your God. Verse 23. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. So that's the second section. God's promises will have a universal impact. Remember, at this stage, the Jews were a nobody, but God is promising to them that they will become a somebody, a people worth knowing. They will become a blessing to the world because God will dwell with them and because they have the knowledge of God. So that's Zechariah 8. So now let's think about this chapter. Let's think about how these promises were, were fulfilled. Uh, did God dwell with them in the end? And did the Jews become a blessing to the world? Well, well, God did not dwell with them in the way they would have expected. In two years' time, when the temple was built, God did not fill this temple with his presence, with smoke, the way he did in the time of Moses in the tabernacle, and the way God did it in the time of Solomon in the temple he built. And did the Jews become a blessing to the world? Well, not in the way they expected. They did not have a glorious Davidic king to rule over them. Their city was not peaceful, was not secure, was not prosperous. And nations did not come to them to seek out God. Rather, nations came to them to conquer and destroy. When the Romans came to power, they eventually destroyed once again Jerusalem and their temple. That was in 70 AD. So then we must ask, how were they, these great promises of Zechariah fulfilled? Well, they're fulfilled in the coming, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. The coming of Jesus meant that God has finally and fully come to dwell with his people. Jesus was called Emmanuel because he is, in fact, God with us. The death of Jesus, well, that meant that God, will, that God has dealt with his people in a new and greater way. No longer in wrath and, and anger and judgment, but in love and mercy. And by the death of Jesus, the sin of his people were removed so that God can dwell with them. And the resurrection of Jesus, well, that meant that there is now new life with God, that God has um, uh, uh, set up a, a time and place where there will be uh, a new life, where God will dwell with his people. And the ascension of Jesus... Well, that meant that the Holy Spirit has now been poured out, that God now dwells in his people by his Holy Spirit. You see, God has blessed his people by giving himself to them. And so God's people, in the fullest sense, have God with them. You see, the promises of Zechariah 8 anticipates what was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So who then are the people that are blessed by God? Well, they're the Christians. They're the followers of Jesus. And the first of these followers were Jews. The disciples, they were all Jews. And so they became the first Christians, the first Jewish Christians. And they were 
the blessing to the world because they, through them, brought the message of the gospel to the world. That's how the promises of Zechariah are fulfilled, through those first Jewish Christians. And because of them, all Christians now are blessed by God. Because all Christians now receive God, receive the Holy Spirit of God. It is with Christians now that God dwells. It is now the Christians who are called the temple of God. And God no longer dwells in Jerusalem in a, in a physical temple made of stones, but God dwells in Christians, in us. How wonderful is that? I mean, how awesome is that? The, the Apostle Peter calls us the living stones, the living stones that are being built into a spiritual house, the temple of God. God has blessed us in a new and far greater way than even the golden age of Israel's history. Christians are blessed because God is with us. But just as God promised that the Jews will become a blessing because they have the knowledge of God, likewise, we Christians are a blessing to the world because we have the knowledge of God. No longer will people need to go to Jerusalem to find out about God. In fact, even if they did, there's no temple there. The temple today is us. The temple today walks around Chatswood. The temple today goes shopping at Woolies. The temple eats in restaurants. The temple fills up petrol. We are now the place where people need to come to to find out about God. If they want to find out about the God of the universe, they have to come to us. They have to know us. So rather than being unimportant or insignificant, we are people worth knowing. We're not just one of the many religions in the world, but we are the only ones shining the bright light of the gospel in this dark world. We are the only ones bearing the words of eternal life. We are the only ones who can show people the path to heaven. And we are the only ones who can introduce people to the king of the universe. If people only knew what we had to offer, if people only knew that we have the knowledge of the true God, then people will be grabbing onto our jumpers, onto our T-shirts, and begging us, take me to church. Please tell me about your God. Please tell me about Jesus. And take me to heaven. If they only knew, we'll have paparazzis all over us. We'll, we'll be on the cover of Women's Weekly. We're not ordinary people. We're special. And we have a very important role to play in this world. We're worth knowing. And this is not because there's something so inherently good or wonderful about us. No. It's because God is with us. And we know God. So today I began asking the question, who are the people worth knowing? Well, I would love to know a pilot. But knowing a pilot might mean that he might be able to take me to the beautiful beaches of Bali. But knowing a Christian will mean that he will be able to take me to the ultimate paradise. Knowing an astronaut, well, that might mean that he might be able to take me to space. But knowing a Christian will mean that he will be able to take you to heaven. Knowing the crown princess of Denmark, well, that might mean that she might be able to introduce me to the Queen of Denmark, their monarch. But knowing a Christian will mean that 
he will be able to introduce me to the king of the universe. So who's worth knowing? Well, we are, because God is with us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've blessed us in Christ in ways unimaginable. We thank you that you dwell in us by your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you'll help us to always declare the praises of you who brought us out of darkness into your glorious light. Amen.